This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. In your face! Huh. A fine romance, my good fellow. You take romance, I'll take jello. You come and the seals in the Arctic Ocean. At least they flap their fins to express emotion. A fine romance with no quarrels, with no insults and all morals. I've never much a crease in your blue serge pants. I never get the chance. This is a fine romance huh. A fine romance With no kisses A fine romance, my friend This is true love Should have the thrills that a healthy crime has We don't have half the thrills that the march of time has A fine romance with no clinches A fine romance with no pinches You're just as hard to land as the yield of friends Not made of plastic You're the reason I'm sarcastic Cause this is a fine Fine romance Marilyn Monroe there A fine romance Run In Your Face on 3CR with James On today's show, community treasure and acclaimed author Dennis Altman joins us to talk about his new book, Unrequited Love. We also speak with Sally Goldner about the passage of the Births, Deaths and Marriages Amendment Bill in Victoria's Legislative Assembly and its upcoming debate in Parliament's Upper House. And later, Jane Green from Vixen Collective joins us with Sex Workers News and to talk about the campaign for decriminalisation. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Well, Dennis Altman is Australia's most acclaimed gay academic with a raft of groundbreaking publications and books, beginning with 1971's Homosexual Oppression and Liberation. His latest book, Unrequited Love, Diary of an Accidental Activist, is out now through Monash University Publishing. Welcome, Dennis. Welcome back to 3CR. Thank you, James. And I have to say, you you led in with absolutely an appropriate song. Yes, indeed. A great track from Marilyn Monroe. Yes, I like that. A Fine Romance, which is rather like the fine romance we have had with the United States over the last 80 years. Well, that's right. Your book uh, looks through the prism of your perspectives as being a frequent visitor to the US through your academic and activist career. I've got to ask you, though, Dennis, why do you view yourself as an accidental activist? You know... I sometimes say that I've 
I'm not a real activist because I've never been arrested. In fact, I've avoided being arrested. But I think it's an accident in that I fell into the gay liberation movement very early on by the sheer chance of being in New York, needing somewhere to live, and ending up living in an apartment which was used by the collective of the first gay lib paper in New York come out. And in a sense, that started me on a career where I guess I'm often called an activist, but it's not a term I feel totally comfortable with. Of course, your book begins shortly after Donald Trump was elected. Uh, Gore Vidal wrote that when fascism comes to America, it will be draped in an American flag. Are we there yet with Trump and his administration? I am very wary of using a term like fascist, fond as I am of course aphorisms, but I think that it is certainly true we have, or the United States has a president who is authoritarian, who has contempt for the processes of democratic decision making, and who is willing to dog whistle in a totally unashamed way to the worst aspects of American racism. Now, I I don't think that all adds up to fascism in a conventional sense, but I think it is something to be deeply worried about. We have seen Trump, of course, engage in well-publicised, racially motivated policies and electioneering, of course, at his rallies with chants like Cinder Back. Do you think that's a warm-up for what we can expect in 2020 if Kamala Harris gets the Democrats' nomination? Is it a warm-up? I don't know, because we saw it after all in, in 2016 when he was running against Hillary Clinton and the chant then was lock her up. I think that uh, Trump's fallback is consistent. Uh, it's sexist. It's racist. It unfortunately appeals to a large number of people who I think feel threatened by rapid change and who somehow identify, I mean, what, what we're seeing across the world, not only in the United States, is this bizarre attraction of the strong man leader. I think this is why, of course, Trump is so close to Putin. And I don't actually think that he's on the take from Putin, although I wouldn't be prepared to swear that. But there's clearly an admiration there, a role model, in a sense, uh, that Trump is modelling himself on. To what extent do you think uh, policy and life could be worse for LGBTIQ Americans if Donald Trump is impeached and Mike Pence becomes president? You know, I don't think that it would make very much difference. I know this is a heretical thing to say, and so I've got to break it down. I don't think it would make very much difference for those people who are gay and lesbian. I think it would clearly make life more difficult for people who are trans, because that's where the legal situation is both more fluid and more significant. I mean, if you're trans, you depend upon access to services, access to acceptability in a rather different way. I think the reality is that the United States is not going to reverse the basic changes that have happened for people on the basis of their homosexuality. But the situation for people who are trans is much more fluid. We've seen that the Trump administration has already uh, used a number of measures, uh, such as trying to exclude all trans people from the military, for example. I, however, don't think Trump will be impeached. I I think we've reached a point now where that is extremely unlikely uh, because of the calendar. Uh, We're already 
moving to a point where people are seriously preparing for the nominations for the presidency next year. And I don't think the Democrats in this situation are actually going to push for impeachment. Nancy Pelosi is perfectly clear that she would rather defeat him at the polls than bring an impeachment process, which in any case would be very, very unlikely to pass the Senate. Of course, Hillary Clinton lost primarily because not enough Democrats actually turned up to vote. Is there a risk of something like that happening again with this huge field of Democrat contenders and and various subsets of the Democrat constituency getting pissed off and and not turning out, whereas the Trump base seems incredibly motivated, fanatical? Yes. Um, you know, I'm going to, James, I'm going to steer you back to my book because um, I'm not sure that I want to spend a lot of time talking about hypotheticals about an election that's not due to happen for a year and a half. Um, so it's much more comfortable for me to talk about what has happened, which I've written about, uh, than to make predictions. And I think that certainly I, I was personally... I think I lost at least one friendship with an American who told me there was no difference between Trump and Clinton. Uh, He couldn't be bothered voting for either. And I have very vivid memories the weekend after the election when I was in the United States and I was in San Francisco and there was a demonstration of people who were angry, frustrated, I think bewildered that Trump had won the election. My sympathy for the demonstrators rather evaporated when a couple of the speakers announced very proudly they hadn't voted. Uh, I think that attitude is, is, is so... It is so ridiculous and so stupid. But it's actually worth remembering there's a parallel in Australia. When Whitlam was elected in 1972, I have a memory of some of the old Sydney libertarians... Uh, who were very proud of the fact that they defied compulsory voting in Australia and, again, hadn't bothered to turn up. Mm. Your book, of course, really explores the theme of unrequited love between Australia and the US, hence hence the title. And, of course, one of the areas where that comes up is HIV activism, where, you know, Australia borrowed so much from the US, yet the favour wasn't returned despite Australia's world-leading response to the epidemic. Can you tell us a bit more about yeah. how you explore that in your book? I think, I think that's very interesting because... I don't think we, I think we did. We borrowed symbolic, uh, we borrowed a lot of symbols. Uh, We, of course, took the quilt, which I I don't know how many people now remember the quilt, but the quilt, which was uh, a memorial to people who died, was an enormously important symbol of the AIDS epidemic in the 1990s, when the uh, 1980s and 90s when people were dying. Uh, We borrowed uh, the red ribbon, although I think in Victoria there were some changes made to it. Uh, We even borrowed ACT UP. In fact, Australia had an ACT UP organisation which took its inspiration. But the reality is our policies were very different and although there was some early influence and I think I talk about uh, the visit that Neil Blewett, then the health minister, made to San Francisco uh, in about 1984 when the epidemic was just beginning. We were way ahead, and, and you're absolutely right. The US showed no interest not only in what Australia was doing, but in fact what anybody else in the world was doing. And the US result was, of course, a much greater, uh, more prolonged epidemic, uh, an epidemic that still continues um, with increasing rates of HIV in certain groups in the United States, 
because of the unwillingness of American authorities to be honest about the way in which sex and drugs operate and how you can prevent the transmission of HIV. Yes, and of course you mentioned the quilt before. It was huge in the US and in Australia. Does it sadden you that people have forgotten about it or there's a whole generation that doesn't have that connection? Look, I think this is, I I, I wouldn't say I'm saddened by it. I would say actually I'm very relieved by it because the fact that uh, we reached a point somewhere in the 1990s where it was no longer inevitable that people infected with HIV would die. That, That is, after all, one of the great triumphs of modern medicine. So we now have a generation growing up who have not lived through the experience of seeing their friends, their lovers, their contemporaries fall ill um, and die. That to me is something to, you know, that we should celebrate. So, no, I'm not saddened by it. I think that there is certainly a gap. There's a, there's a gap in that a lot of, and I feel this very much, people of my generation I think are very aware of the fact, not just gay men, but a lot of people of my generation recognise that we are growing older and many of the people who should be there on that journey with us are no longer there and died prematurely. But we have to remember that in many parts of the world, that reality is still true. Uh, Young people, particularly in parts of Africa, the Middle East, the Philippines, Russia, are still dying in considerable numbers due to HIV infection. What are your thoughts on how LGBTIQ activism has moved on in recent years from largely focusing on sexuality to gender identity? That's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because the original thrust of the movement that I was part of, by accident, as we said at the beginning that I was part of, was very much around sexual liberation. Uh, The idea that we should be free to have as much sex and as many forms of sex as we wanted without uh, running foul of the law Uh, without being criminalised, regarded as deviant, whatever. The emergence over the last few years of a new sort of affirmation by trans people has, I think, totally challenged the whole ways in which we understand gender. And I'm not surprised that this is causing such an extraordinary backlash from authorities such as the Catholic Church from right-wing politicians such as Mark Latham, uh, from their cheer squad in the media such as Andrew Bolt, because what they're really doing is forcing us to rethink some of the things that are most often taken for granted. You know, most people believe without thinking about it that there are sort of deep, essential biological differences, that there are men and there are women, full stop. And the trans revolution, and I think it is a revolution, has challenged us to think about that in quite new ways. So I'm not surprised that that's now uh, the primary grounds for dispute. I think you're going to be talking about this in more detail later on this afternoon with Sally, right? Absolutely. After yeah. the uh, the passage of the Gender Diversity and Birth Certificates Bill here in Victoria, getting through the lower house. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I do recognise is that my generation of sexual liberationists really didn't understand the trans experience. Uh, we We really didn't see the extent to which 
However far we push sexual liberation, that by itself would not resolve the contradictions that many people felt around their gender identity. And one of the things that I do regret is knowing several people who have transitioned quite late in life, who clearly held in themselves, in some cases for decades, a desire to change the way in which they presented themselves to the world in the most basic ways and just didn't feel able to. And I think there's something rather wonderful about the fact that we now live in a world in which it is increasingly easier for people uh, to assert who they want to be without feeling that everything will cave in around them. Last time we spoke on the radio, it was just after Parliament legalised marriage equality here in Australia. Now the debate's moved on to religious freedom. What are your thoughts on that debate and how we should respond as an LGBTIQA community? Look, I think there is something very ironic in the fact that people are already demonstrating. There have been marches and demonstrations across Australia. We don't know what the bill is going to say. And if all the government introduces is something that says people are free to believe whatever it is they want to believe, I would have no problem with that. I think the big problem, we all know, is that many people think that their beliefs are so right that they should be forced upon others. And to me, the really big issue is one that hasn't been raised much in the debate, and that's the fact that a very large number of kids in Australia go to religious-based schools. I have a real problem with this. In an ideal world, I would want all kids to, at least for some part of their schooling, go into the state system to be mixing with people from very different religious, ethnic, class backgrounds and not to be exposed to the religious doctrines that their parents have essentially chosen for them. Um, And I rather regret we're not having a debate on that scale. We seem to be having a debate about quite small issues, all of which, as I say, are predicated upon assumptions about what a bill might say, which we haven't yet seen. Your book, of course, is called Unrequited Love, Diary of an Accident activist. It has many anecdotes about activism in it. What's your favourite one? (laughs) My favourite one about activism? Oh, that's a good question. Look, I think um, this is probably going to explain why I'm an accidental activist. Um, I was there at the first Mardi Gras. I am a a 78er. I'm allowed to march at the front of the Mardi Gras parade or indeed to ride on the Mardi Gras bus uh, if I have the patience for it. But the reality is I was there with a friend. We went as far as the cross. We stood there. We saw things were getting nasty and we fled and went home. And, you know, you could say that shows either great foresight or great cowardice on my part, and I don't really care which one. Um, But I certainly look back on that night as clearly a very important turning point uh, in the development of the queer movement in Australia. You also talk towards the end of your book about being in Los Angeles and how it reminded you of a, of a futuristic New York City from the 1970s. Can you kind of explain that a bit more? That's, that's inter- I think it's probably because the image that we have of Los Angeles is essentially the one we get from Hollywood movies. And a lot of being, and I happen to be a great, to be very fond of Los Angeles. And in fact, uh, there are images that, that come through the book um, where the reality of LA is reenacted through movies, such as, for example, the beginning of La La Land, which probably lots of people listening uh, will have seen. The moment in 
a number of films where people stand in Griffith Park looking out across the lights of LA. But what we don't always recognise is that downtown LA has rejuvenated enormously in the last 20 years. Downtown LA is now an exciting big city. It feels like uh, a metropolis in a way that this sort of expansive suburban Hollywood LA didn't. Uh, and I think I, what really has struck me being in LA, and I've been there now three or four times over the last few years, is the way in which one sees so clearly the remarkable class and racial divisions in the United States. I have never seen as many people homeless on the street in a rich city as one now sees in LA. And I do have this rather sad memory. I don't think I do write about it in the book, but I was with close friends and we were walking in downtown LA to dinner. We walked along a street which was lined with people queuing up to seek shelter for the night. And I found this very distressing, but what I found even more distressing was that my two American friends literally did not see it. And I think that ability that, you know, you, is replicated here in Melbourne, the upper end of Burke Street sometimes, the ability of people who are well off not to see the suffering around them is unfortunately all too vivid now uh, across the United States. Finally, Dennis, the unrequited love between Australia and the US, which largely focuses on the US not really having a great understanding of of what goes on in Australia. Do you think that that gulf, that starkness has reduced in recent years or do you still think it's as unrequited as ever? Oh, look, I think the reality is if you fall in love with someone who is much bigger much more powerful, much more significant and much richer. And, you know, we, 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 we could start drawing parallels, I guess, from our own experiences. But if you fall in love with someone who is so in a league so unlike yours, of course the love is going to be in some ways unrequited. I think that what Australia needs is a much more hard-headed and rational attitude that actually accepts we have national interests. Sometimes they may coincide with those of the United States. Sometimes they don't. And I did hope, actually, that Trump's insistence on, I think he, it's, it's always referred to as transactional relationships, although it appears that Trump has a whole series of bromances with extremely unpleasant dictators. But I'd hope that Trump's stress on American interests above all else would lead to a greater rationality in the way we in Australia look at the United States. I'm rather distressed that our Prime Minister is apparently falling for the old line that if you know he can establish a close personal relationship with the President of the United States and somehow this will pay off. I think we have enough evidence from Trump's behaviour over the last two and a half years that that's a fool's game. Dennis Altman, always a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. And lovely to talk to you, James. Cheers. Dennis Altman there. And Dennis's book, Unrequited Love, Diary of an Accidental Activist, is published by Monash University Publishing. Up next, Sally Goldner. In the meantime, though, he's Blondie.
Bondi, Do More Destiny on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On the line, we have the wonderful Sally Goldner. Sally, welcome to In Your Face. It's good to be with you as always, James. Sally, it's been a monumental week. Victoria's lower house of parliament passed the Births, Deaths and Marriages Amendment Bill, which enables gender self-determination on birth certificates. But of course, it has to get through the upper house. It's heading there on August 27. Uh, what can you tell us about the political situation there? But we still have the uh, minimum 21 out of 40 locked in. So 18 Labor, Samantha Ratnam of the Greens, Fiona Patton of the Reason Party and Andy Medic from the Animal Justice Party, who has now done two or three stories talking about how he has a trans child and how they work through it. And I, I just have to say I've met Andy and he's just, he's just one of the loveliest people you'd want to meet. So I think we are very safe with that minimum. But of course, there are eight other crossbenchers who are yet to declare their positions. And this is where a campaign will be ramping up over the weekend and through next week to try to get them to publicly declare their support. I know you've been watching the debate closely all week. Were you in the gallery at Parliament? I wasn't in the gallery this time. Unfortunately, I had other things scheduled, and then then the birth certificate debate came on this week, but I was trying to keep up online and also um, read the Hansard, which in the case of the ALP was good to read, but obviously some of the Liberal speeches one in particular, the same one of the same lower house culprits as last time was quite appalling. Oh, do tell. And who was that? Louise Staley, who last time did the dreaded uh, horrific, and I, I will say for our listeners, content warning type of stuff, bathroom and changing room type stuff, and this time went further, um, bringing up issues of ma- double content warning, also almost you know implying that trans people were murderers, which was pretty poor, naming three people who, yes, may well have been violent, but you know the implication therefore comes out that all, all trans people are like that. Gee, she's but, scraping the barrel low doing that. I mean, that's, that's, that's desperation and that's, that's political mudslinging, isn't it? Oh, look, it's, she's not just got to the bottom of the barrel, she's drilled through the bottom of the barrel. It's appalling. And so we would, I think the thing that we would say is if you are reading Hansard, be careful of the Liberal speeches. But there is, on the other side of the coin, as people may be aware that um, in parliamentary debate, there's a speaker for the yes to support a motion or a bill, then a no, yes and no. The Liberals ran out after a while and there were seven more Labor speakers um, who just went all in a row at the end, which I think is saying something that not too many people are willing to get up and speak. At least that wasn't the case in the lower house where it ended up going through 56-27. Which is a fantastic result. And yes, uh, that situation with the Liberals indicates that there are probably some that wish that they could cross the floor but aren't quite brave enough to. Well, that's right. It does, you know, sort of wonder, had there been a conscience vote for the Liberal Party, what could the result have been? And um, I think that's really important. So that is a good reason for us to be writing to the remaining eight crossbenchers in the upper house, not only does it get their votes on board, but it sends a signals, signal to the upper house, the Legislative Council Liberals, that um, you know, sort of the, the extreme things that are being said are not on. And I do have to say one thing, though, the support from across the rainbow communities has been huge, but also there's significant support, I think, from the broader community. And whilst I totally get that the remarks we're hearing opposing the bill from um, various quarters are, from our point of view, horrible. 
I also think there's a lot of people who are quietly supportive as well. Tell us about some of those really moving speeches that happened from some of the government MPs, uh, some of those really heartwarming things that people can read in, in Hansard. Oh, this is, that's a really good point. There were so many MPs who read stories from their own local constituents. You know, and that says something, that there were so many... You know, I mean, of course we know trans people have always been everywhere in a sense, but now that there are so many speak, people speaking up from all over inner and outer metro Melbourne, from regional and rural Victoria, that was quite warming to see and just stories of so many people and their journeys with um, trans people, family members. And there was one MP who got a story about how their child will have to go for their... Want, is wanting to go for their driver's licence soon. And the MP said, I can't imagine having to... Uh, I'm trying to get this right, go for my driver's licence and sort of do it in the wrong gender or something like that. There was just great empathy from the MPs. And there were also people like emergency service workers who counted some of the horrific myths that we know about saying that in years of being police or paramedics, they'd never seen some of the nonsense that um, those who would oppose the bill spouted. So it was both very, very positive and affirming and heartwarming and also countering negatives. And there's a great range of speeches, as I say, from um, MPs around the state, um, from people covering Gippsland and Ballarat and various suburbs, just to name a few. So there was a real regional trans support theme happening as well? That's right. Not just and the I city? Also, yeah, and also an intended MP for Shepparton was supportive as well. So that's really good news as well. And obviously Sam Hibbins from the Greens. So the independent from Shepparton, she voted for, for the legislation? Yes. That's, that's, um, that's great. Yeah. Who else from the government uh, gave particularly moving speeches? Can you name some of the government MPs that stood out for you? Oh, well, look, Martin Polly's record goes without saying, and Jill, Jill Hennessy's. But there were one, and I'm sorry, names get to be my weak spot sometimes, but there was one really good one from the member for Bass, which is the one I was thinking of that covers part of Gippsland, and we know that another great Sally, Sally Conning, does great work down there. And I think that's probably shone through as well. But, you know, there were people who just were quite um, so, you know, talking about the people, trans people they had met. Um, Isabel, um, a member covering Cranbourne, uh, mentioned young Evie MacDonald, who, along with Georgie Stone, is going to be on TV soon. And I should add, on Tuesday, Martin Foley made a statement about how Georgie Stone will soon be on Neighbours. So... Um, there has been lots of positive support for our trans and gender diverse communities from the government this week and to, other crossbenchers in the lower house as well. To what extent does or has the, the trans activist world, if you like, organisations overseas been watching what's been happening in Victoria this week? Cause it's groundbreaking legislation and I imagine there's been quite a bit of interest. I've had a couple of calls from overseas to do media I don't think it's quite filtered through yet, given that the, the bill only went through the Legislative Assembly just under almost 24 hours ago, this time yesterday. So it hasn't quite caught on yet, but I think it will in time. And I think that will be incredibly helpful because I think that we know of some of the, you know, we know of the challenges that our trans and gender diverse siblings face overseas. The, so the radical feminists in the UK are particularly intense and I know that our colleagues there and in all of the United Kingdom and the Irish and to some extent the Irish Republic are doing it tough 
And of course, we're well aware of what's happening with, well, I'll just call him Mr. POTUS and what's happening in America. But of course, there's other countries where people are further disadvantaged. Um, Brazil comes to mind. So I'm, you know, the world is connected, of course, and so the ripples will spread in time, particularly where, you know, we are hopeful that this will get through um, the Legislative Council in about two weeks from now. Are you worried that opponents to this bill will really up the ante with their campaign to try and, you know, convince some of those upper house MPs who are on side to to not support the bill? Are you worried about dirty tricks? Oh, look, they're they're pulling dirty tricks, and we know that. And I know that some of those eight not yet publicly committed crossbenchers were felt very barraged in the last couple of weeks. But on the other hand, the tide is turning back. There's been lots of people from our point of view meeting with them, you know, working through the issues calmly and sensibly, calming the nerves down. And I think the pendulum is swinging back. And now I think our timing will be right, that if lots of trans and gender diverse people, families and allies feel calm, willing and able to write to their MPs next week, I think that we will just hit the, the mark at the right time because I think that a lot of the, um, well, say the, those eight MPs, some of the nerves have been settled. So my gut, and I'm, it's only a gut instinct, I think on balance we can get at least four more, which would be pretty solid. And perhaps the focus uh, should be on some Liberal MPs who may be wavering and maybe silently wanting to cross the floor. Perhaps over the next couple of weeks uh, that could eventuate into a reality. Of course, Sue Hickey, the Tasmanian speaker, showed that the sky doesn't fall in when you cross the floor. She crossed the floor. She enabled the legislation to pass Mm. in in Tasmania. Do you think we could expect to see some Liberals following suit in Victoria? I think that... Um, you know, I think that we could, but I think having the more cross benches we can get first will do two things. It could put the pressure on Liberals, some upper house Liberals, to abstain or cross the floor, but it can also have the advantage that it could tone down the volume on some of the really hurtful speech. And I think that has to be considered. Yes, I know in the end people will look at the number of votes, look at the scorecard, so to speak, but I think we also want to make sure and look at how the game is played And if we can keep that horrible speech down as someone who was in Parliament in 2016, it was awful. So if we can keep that to a minimum and keep opposition, you know, sure, to democracy and there's parliamentary privilege, but let's hope there's some responsibility from those who even those who do speak against the bill. Sally, always great chatting. No doubt you'll be talking about this quite a lot on Our The Pan uh, on Sunday noon here at 3CR. Thanks for chatting. A pleasure, James, and thanks as always for your support. And if I could add one other thing, and that is tonight is the launch of the We Deserve Project, which I'll be chatting about as well. Awesome stuff. Uh, Sally, we'll talk again. Cheers. Thanks, James.
Depeche Mode, The Meaning of Love, joined in the studio by Jane Green from Vixen Collective. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Last time we spoke, uh, the Herald Sun was fascinated by sex dens. What's going on there? The Herald Sun have a continuing fascination with many things. Um, Most recently, it's been exploding brothels. Really? Yeah, no, they, they seem to have a persistent use of the term explosion. Which, look, that crossed over into ABC Radio at one point and I had to speak to ABC about exploding brothels. Which, look, as I explained to them, uh, is not a thing. Um, I think if we'd been exploding that we would be well aware of it. Maybe some casualties. Yeah, look. (laughs) So it's just, you know, another instance of media using sensationalistic language to describe our workplaces. Um, But also, I think, an instance of the the language around moral panic around sex work and um, the nimbyism of uh, sex work in the suburbs. So people about having that not in my backyard, that, you know, sex work might be okay, but not here, not in my street. Um, And so that happened in terms of stories about sex work premises in Mooney Ponds. There was a number of stories about that recently. May I ask what an exploding brothel actually is? Look, I don't know. I, <laughs> is there a, does it refer to a, a surge in the growth of brothels and yeah. the industry's exploding apparently? Yeah, apparently exploding. Um, right. And look, that was absolutely the allegation that the stories in the Mooney Ponds leader, which the Herald Sun picked up and ran, uh, was. that was, It's in their stable. Yeah, and look, the what I said to them when I spoke to, and the ABC Radio picked it up, uh, was that both the experience of our community and research by academics that have looked into the level of the sex industry in Victoria and also government research has shown that the sex industry is actually stable and or in decline slightly. So it's just not a thing. Um, and I understand that they think that's very exciting language that helps them sell newspapers and get clicks. It's great clickbait, but it's just not a thing. And the one thing that we argue for as advocates of community is that you should be doing stuff that's based on evidence. So if you're putting stuff about us in the newspapers or talking about us online, that it should be evidence-based and it should also be based in actually speaking to members of our community and to our representative organisations. Because if you're speaking to the public and representing what our community is like, it should have some sort of semblance of reality involved. Of course, last time we chatted, you spoke about Victoria Police and working with them to build a better relationship between sex workers and the police. How's that going? I would say that that's a long path to change but it's something we're committed to. But, yeah, I don't oversell that. I think the change is slow, and although we'd certainly like to see that progressing at a greater speed, I think part of that is that Vixen is doing that work as an unfunded voluntary org, so there is a certain amount of our time we can devote to that, but we always prioritise support within our own community and peer support and direct services to Victorian sex workers. And if we were a funded organisation, we would be able to do more. Look, it does get up our goat here at 3CR that uh, sex work peer support isn't funded. Of course, Victoria was the first place in the world to fund it back in the day. Now it's not funded. Our health minister here in Victoria, Jenny McCarkos, has refused to meet with sex workers now. Of course, she's the health minister. Any progress there? And uh, uh, no, no, nothing. 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 Um, and, and look, I, I think... All politicians, when they're talking about or making policy in regard to any marginalised community, and this isn't um, just reserved to sex workers, should engage directly with the community in question um, and should base the policy they make on evidence and on direct consultation with the affected community. And so it's been deeply disappointing to us 
not just in relation to Minister Makakis, but that any government minister would speak out about our community or would seek to form policy without consulting with our representative organisations, which here in Victoria is Vixen Collective, and also with the National Peak, which is Scarlet Alliance. It doesn't sound like the Andrews government's talking to sex workers at all, though. I think we're going to make a push to try and get the conversations going again, and I'll be very glad to come back and tell you about that when it happens and what the results of that are. I think we've been buoyed by the adoption by Labor to their policy platform of decrim and see that as a real step forward. But what will be very telling is whether that plays out in terms of action by the Labor government. And so I think that initial um, confidence from our community that Labor have taken the step and adopted decrim as a policy, it, we're not overly enthusiastic until we see something actually done about it. Are you worried they'll try that old chestnut and say, oh, yeah, we'll deal with this if we get elected for a third term? I, I, I think at this point we're just not willing to speculate. I, I think we're a community, um, and again, I think a lot of marginalised communities feel this way, that we believe it when we see it. So I think we'll believe it when we see it. And, of course, I guess that applies to Jill Hennessy, the Attorney-General. Of course, she did give a commitment to meet with sex workers. It uh, doesn't sound like she's stuck to that yet. Not yet, but again, we will be pushing that. And I think one of the issues that we do face as an unfunded organisation is often proactive work that we'd like to do in terms of meeting with politicians and raising these issues are balanced out against our need to directly support community and to run our peer support service and to respond to issues that are raised in media. Um, So we're often fighting fires rather than doing proactive work and advocacy. And that's a really hard balance to maintain. And we're constantly frustrated that we want to be doing more um, and we're not able to do so because we're not funded to do so and it's a constant tenuous balance of working out where those priorities lie for us. Absolutely. Uh, Because those two ministers haven't met with you, they haven't made any kind of, you know, overtures for contact, Jenny McCarkos and Jill Hennessy, have you thought about focusing on the Premier, putting him under some pressure, which perhaps could mean that he turns to them and and says, look, meet with our vixen? We've certainly, when issues have been raised in the past, and and one that sticks in my mind, and I certainly think sticks in the minds of many Victorian sex workers, was the funding of the anti-sex work organisation Project Disrespect, which is Project Respect with sex workers, do call it Project Disrespect, a couple of years ago. We did write to the Premier around that and did not receive a response, which was quite disappointing to us, obviously. So we have raised those those things in the past um, and failed to even get any feedback So it's a possibility, but I think when we have raised issues and not got anything back at all, it makes us think that that perhaps that's a waste of our time um, and we don't have a lot of time to waste. No, Um, no. What I I would say as well is that we are, even as an unfunded organisation, putting a lot of effort into community events at the moment because we've had feedback from sex workers that sex workers want space to actually socialise and come together as a community. Um, We did actually have a fundraiser last night, which turned out, given what's happened in Sydney, to be an important space for sex workers to come together and have time as a community to actually talk out what had happened in Sydney. Um, And people are probably aware um, of the death of Michaela Dunn. That was a very well-attended event, both by community members and by allies, and we always need allies to support us. And so we'd like to thank everyone that came and also thank the performers We had um, a range of people, including Cystic Nightmare, Not Quite White, Racer Age, um, Jermaine Gruyere, and people, if they did not come, missed a performance there that was truly spectacular. Do tell. Um, (laughs) 
I could not possibly put into words. People will just have to come again and, and see that. And also Jack. But I'd like to really thank Feminist Insurgency who actually put that fundraiser on for Vixen. The support we have had, particularly in the last couple of years, from allied organisations and allied communities um, has been remarkable. And we need to continue that. We need more of that. And we often, as an organisation um, that faces a lot of oppression, we extend support to other marginalised communities. I think that's a key message that we keep emphasising now, that marginalised people have to stick together. That's how we get things done. Absolutely. And Feminist Insurgency, obviously, is doing great work. I heard you speak at International Women's Day this year and you spoke about how historically sex workers and feminist activisms have sometimes had a rocky relationship in Victoria. That seems to be really improving. It is. Um, I I think there's a long road to that as well. Um, I think there's certainly the events um, this this week with Melbourne University um, and there are a number of us that attended the protest of the event um, that was held there. Tell us about um, that. The, um, there was an event protesting the recognition of the trans uh, birth certificates um, and I think there's a great deal of solidarity between trans folk and sex workers because often we're attacked by the same so-called feminists um, and there was a protest of over 100 people protesting that event. I think people need to have solidarity with trans folk, particularly around issues such as this. And Melbourne feminists need to do a lot of work. And that work needs to start from listening to people, listening to sex workers and listening to trans folk. And if your feminism is not intersectional feminism, if your feminism does not include sex workers and does not include trans folk, then it's not feminism. And I guess, you know, events in Sydney with Michaela's death have have really highlighted the need to support marginalised groups and, you know, marginalised women. Mm. And and look... Around Michaela's death, that was the death of someone at work. Um, It highlights the need to support people's labour rights and to support the safety of people at work. And media stories that have focused on victim blaming and focused on stereotypes and stigma are profoundly unhelpful and unacceptable and should be called out. If people want to do something useful, um, there is a vigil in Sydney this evening Uh, The details are on the Twitter feed of Scarlet Alliance. But support organisations in New South Wales, support Swap New South Wales, and I'd say support Scarlet Alliance as the national peak. They are the relevant organisations to contact to find out what is useful to do in that space. And if allies want to do something useful, ask. Are you disappointed with the media coverage of Michaela's death? I think it started out perhaps better in the first day or two than we might have expected but we've started to see some negative stories come through and I think we're not surprised by that and I think it's sad that we're not surprised there's a pattern with violent crime that affects our members of our community and with deaths of members of our community with very toxic media that comes out and often with organisations that oppose the rights of sex workers almost in a predatory fashion coming out with statements and has that been happening it hasn't yet and I hope it doesn't I certainly hope it doesn't Uh, but in the past I've seen that in terms of deaths in community where they'll come out with statements or come out with opinion editorials um, and using it as a mechanism to prey on our community and call for laws that would actually increase harms towards us 
and it's just so deeply inappropriate um, and harmful. So I very much hope it doesn't happen in this instance, but there's such a pattern of that occurring. And this is an instance for people to support the voices of our community and to elevate the voices of sex workers and of our representative organisations in calling for what we need. And what we need is safety at work and we need law reform that supports our safety at work. Those patterns talked about, they dehumanise sex work and sex workers, which basically just keeps the, the cycle rolling, doesn't it? Yes, I guess the relationship with the police is also incredibly paramount and and shows that uh, a negative relationship between sex workers and police also keeps that cycle rolling. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, because we've been doing more work with Victoria Police, the, the two things that I say in that space over and over is that there's two primary factors that affect that relationship. One is the laws that prevent us from having access to police because laws that criminalise us make us unable to go to police when things go wrong in our work. If you're a victim of a violent crime and your first thought is not shall is first thought is not I'm going to go to the police and report this, but I'm too afraid to go to the police because they may arrest me when I report this. If that's your concern, then that's a problem. And we need to remove those laws that create a barrier between members of our community and police. How common is that when sex workers are subjected to violence and they report it to police, that they in fact become the focus of police in a negative way? At the moment, the the fear prevents people from even reporting. We routinely have workers call us and say, I'm too scared to report. And Victoria Police will not give us a guarantee that they won't um, charge people. Even in cases of sexual assault, they won't issue a guarantee that they won't charge people. So we can't tell people that they're safe to report. Uh, So that's such a major barrier that people will not go. And we did a study back in 2015 on the willingness to report. And the willingness to report is very low in our community. But we also did a study on what people's experiences were when they reported to police. So from people that had actually made that step and gone forward. And people's experiences were profoundly negative. And so that second part that I was talking about is police attitudes. And police attitudes affect people's experiences. And we, in the study, we asked people who are reporting particularly sexual assault what their experiences are when they go into Victoria Police. So this is someone who's been just been raped going into a police station, and the things that have, they have said to them are, you're not capable of being raped. Your job is violent, so you deserve it. You're a waste of my time. Can you imagine being the victim of a sexual assault and the first person you go in to tell is a police officer sitting behind the counter of a police station and they say that to you? This is the experience that members of our community have when they're reporting sexual assault. And then they go back and they tell the rest of our community that's what the experience is, and this again lowers the willingness to report. And this is why it's important not only to address the barriers in law, which we need to do by advocating to government to change the law, but to address the attitudes in policing so that the police don't hold stigmatising views towards our community and treat us with the same level of respect and compassion they treat other members of the community who are victims of serious crime. And Lisa Neville, the police minister here in Victoria, I think really needs to get that message and to be proactive and to take steps so it doesn't happen because it's just not on. That's a complete abrogation of, of, of human rights and decency and it's just uh, it's unjustifiable. Yeah, and, and look, this sits within a broader um, pattern of issues that victims of crime and victims of sexual assault face in terms of victim blaming. 
So it's not just relating to our community, but our community are on really the pointy end of it. Jane Green, thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. Please come back in the coming months. Uh, Love your updates. They're always profoundly informative about what's happening in sex worker activism and what needs to be done. Thank you so much and much appreciated. And congrats on the venue uh, and the performers and the whole kabam last night with the uh, Vixen Collective's benefit. Yeah, And thanks for Cafe Gummo as well. I forgot to thank them. Awesome stuff. Uh, Jacob's up next with a Friday rave, but taking us out is Alison Moye. When I was your girl, I didn't know that I would end where you begin. More beautiful in your skin, no matter of regret, this loosening curl. Teasing you out when I was your girl in my room. You said we'll stay here for an endless year. Close the door, we're letting no one near. When I was your girl, when I was your girl, and then today. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.